0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are, or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 197 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we have two wonderful
1: guests. Um, This was such an amazing episode to record. Um, I got a little emotional. I think this is probably the first time I cried on a podcast, so forgive me, but it was a little, a little raw and emotional. But um, Jan and Sonia were just uh, uh, amazing, amazing, amazing people. So, um, our first guest is Jan Pryor. She currently works as an SLP at University of Washington Medical Center, Seattle. Specializes in voice, swallowing, and airway management. She received her bachelor's and master's from the University of Northern Colorado. Jan has worked throughout the continuum of medical settings from the ICU to skilled nursing facilities over the past 30 plus years. She received her board certification in swallowing and swallowing disorders in 2009. She is also NDT certified in the treatment of adults with hemiplegia, the mcneil Fraser Dysphagia Therapy Program, and Vital Stem Therapy. She is currently enrolled as, as a doctoral student in rehabilitation sciences at the University of Washington and proud to be a Washington Husky fan. She is a founding board member of the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders and the NFOSD support group coordinator. And our second guest is Sonia Blue. Uh, She's a former president of the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, and as a result of a stroke and then surgical removal of a brain lesion in 2003, Sonia's dysphagia left her tube dependent for six and a half years. She traveled the country to pursue all available treatments to no avail. Sonia began working with Dr. Peter Bulavsky and Jan Pryor in 2005, and with their help and her own efforts, her tube was removed, and she began eating again in 2009. Sonia Blue holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Liberal Arts and a Master's degree in Clinical Psychology from Antioch University, Los Angeles. As a California licensed marriage and family therapist, she has spent the last 30 years working as a psychotherapist in private practice. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Like I said, this was one of my most favorite uh, (laughs) gut-wrenching episodes we've done, but just such a wonderful testament to what truly we can do um, to help patients in our profession. So hope you you guys enjoy this.
0: Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host,
1: Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the Medislp Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it. Your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, ladies, or good morning, wherever you are. Whatever. Good day. Happy Tuesday. (laughs) 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 All right. So, yeah. So, Jan and Sonia, thank you so much to the both of you for being here. Um, Jan, if you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself.
2: Yes, well, I'm a speech pathologist, as you know, and I've been working in this field for over 30 years. I kind of stopped counting (laughs) at 30. So I've seen a lot, done a lot um, in the continuum of like ICU through nursing homes. So I feel like I have a broad, um, I've had a broad exposure to a lot of our different roles and the populations that we treat, love what I do got involved in the foundation of swallowing disorders at its start and its inception. So I'm one of the founding board directors and we can talk about that later, I guess, but um, I'm currently, I work as a speech pathologist, but I'm currently um, on uh, leave uh, to finish up my doctoral dissertation. And my interest is in um, the broader impact of dysphagia on people including like psychosocial oh, that, impact yeah. that's that's my that's my dissertation interest so oh
1: congratulations awesome I, I didn't know you were doing that Thank you, awesome yeah. i'm writing
2: now i'm writing my chapter so it's really gonna awesome.
1: happen
3: all right and sonia Um hi well i just want to thank you so much for the invitation it's great to uh speak about this my name is sonia uh blue and i come to this topic sort of in the crosshairs of a personal experience. And also, I'm a a marriage and family therapist. So it just so happened that dysphagia happened to a therapist. And so I, I, like Jan, have a particular interest in not only my own experience, but how it plays out psychologically for other people. So I had a non-cancerous brain lesion that that um, in 2000 diagnosed in late 2002 and i got a couple different opinions and i was told it'd be better to wait because it wasn't really in an operable spot on my right medulla and i waited and i was guaranteed pretty much i'd have a stroke while i waited and in fact i did and the stroke of course impaired my swollen because the lesion was near my vagus nerve on my right so it's, it's quite a story. But I, I then had 10 and a half hours of an open craniotomy. They resected the lesion, and I was very lucky. In term, I mean, if, here I am talking to you today, which kind of proves I'm very lucky. But as it was, so many things improved over time and effort, and but my swallowing didn't return, and so I was tube dependent for six and a half years. Without water or food, and I, and Jen knows this because I met her very early in my journey, so she was an integral part of my healing. But I, my dysphagia, the profound part of my dysphagia, lasted far beyond the the norm, the normal realm of recovery. So once I started to get out, kind of into the netherlands of time, there really wasn't. Um, a direction right because nobody really knew so part of my story is that journey and then my journey back to oral eating, which was in 2009 my tubers was removed so i i, I eat so well that <laughs> I could lose 10 pounds <laughs> that's and, is, that. and that and that is a blessing i never thought would happen so that's a little bit about me and and. I and like Jan, I'm one of the originators, the original board members and creators and founders of the foundation. You were the first president. Amazing. Yeah, the first president out of my kitchen, you know, and, and and you already have some experience of my untech savviness. So I was, you know, chicken scratching and punching out. But the the vision of that was kind of to to respond to what you said, you know, people at that point at least in my experience, we're reinventing the wheel every time. There wasn't like one clearinghouse. Either it was very anecdotal or very technical and medical. So that was part of our vision as well. Amazing. Amazing.
1: Do you want to share kind of what this whole six year journey really is so intriguing to me, you know, because I think it's very unfortunately common within our field that sometimes it takes that long, that um, sometimes it takes that long to find the right providers. Sometimes it takes that long to find the right treatment. Um, So, yeah, I'd love I'd love to hear a little bit more about that if you're willing to share. Well, it's six and a half
3: years and I'm very particular about the half year (laughs) because because yeah, but who's counting right After my surgery, I was in the hospital for a month in intense care rehab recovery and getting, you know, bedside uh assistance in speech, occupational and physical therapy, you know, three, four times a day. And after I think it was maybe the first, I don't know, 10 days, and I was on IV, you know, they have to feed you. And so, you know, the options are tube or what, a nasal was it gastric? But what is it? No, it's a nasal, what's it called? Ng tube, nasal gastric tube. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I was a very compliant patient up till that moment. <laughs> and then I was like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. So I got so I went back into surgery, whatever, seven days later. And I left the hospital with a tube in the case of um, you know, canned nutrition. And, you know. In my experience in those days, you know, there wasn't really a longitudinal study. Nobody was calling me a month later to say, how are you doing? Nobody's calling me six months later. So it's kind of like you're on your own, you know, and here's some paperwork and do these exercises and, you know, find the ENT. So I did all that and I did everything pretty religiously. Um, And then um, I, you know, went to my sister's for a month and then I went home. And then I was what I call the Statue of Liberty. You know, I was sitting there with my feeding <laughs> tube. Like you know, that went on for a long time. And I and I started to research. And I'm re- trying to remember, Jan. Was it through Marcy? I think it was through mm-hmm. Marcy Freed. I had found out about Marcy Freed, who was doing vital stem, and uh, she had was doing, I get some workshops in the, in the Northern California area. I'm in Northern California and, um, I cold called and I I don't know, did I get you, Jan? I think I may have gotten you. And I was trying to volunteer myself to be a guinea pig. And Jan, or I think it was Jan said, you know, thank you so much, but like we're full. And I went, but no, 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 no. You have to meet me. And thus began our beautiful friendship. And so I started, uh, I I started independently working with Jan. And Jan led me to Dr. Peter Belaski because you were working with Peter at Scripps, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I started that journey and then started doing a lot of, you know, uh, cold calling on my own. And I was very committed to being the poster child you know, that I was going to swallow again. And that was really the engine that drove me for a long time. And then I, so I worked with Peter and Jan for a couple of years. And then you moved to Davis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was, um, so I would say that Peter and Jan were really the nucleus of my team. um, And and continue to be so to this day. I can sing Jan's praises in another moment, because I want to give her some airtime too. <laughs> um, and then I was trying to kind of, and this is a theme of mine, like reassemble my team, always get fresh eyes. Because I in my experience, it was coming for pediatric and it was coming for geriatric. But I was in that weird space. And I was still cogent and verbal enough to represent myself. And so it was really a very, um, I was in the middle of a divorce and I was in the middle of raising my only child, a nine-year-old. So it was, you know, devastating as it is on all those levels and my work, everything stopped. Hey, Sonia, can you make comment on something that I
2: always think is really interesting as you, Throughout, I think, this span of time that you've been struggling with dysphagia, you have um, you have reassembled your team several times and you've reached out to all these other people. Can You've often talked about what your experiences were with some of the other, some people that you've you've interacted with. You don't have to name names, but um, one of the things that Sonia and I talk about a lot is that she's taught me is that the words are important. What we say to patients are important. So I just, do you know that topic I'm talking about, yeah, Sonia? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, so it'd be interesting
2: (laughs) for your perspective, what it was like to interact with somebody, because I literally I would get phone calls from like, you know, Crary and oh, yes. And Gerilyn Yeah, I I got her inside line because she had some ideas for Sonia. So I I would call Gerilyn Logeman and that Sonia had been to her, gotten to her. So. She really was a self-advocate. She really did go, okay, biofeedback. What did Geraldine say? What would so-and-so say? Which I really think is fantastic. She found this all out herself. But anyway,
3: just a little bit about your experience consulting
2: the top, top people in our
3: field. Yeah. Um, what you learned from that. Well, I was introduced to a fees test, right? And I was, it's so which I've had. I can't, you know, I don't have enough fingers to count. Um, but the language is pass or fail. And I kept hearing fail, 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 fail. She failed it. She failed it. And they would talk amongst themselves in a very kind of nonplussed way. And I found that to be very- uh, Were you like, hi, hello, I can hear you. (laughs) Well, yeah, but they they didn't hear fail as, as, so what? So you hear me. This is how we talk about it. And I remember, uh, Jen, when we had one of our- um, one of Peter's uh sensitivity things you know I remember I spoke with doctors advanced about practices that. advanced, advanced okay. practices so and I spoke not about a patient's perspective <laughs> about not to be treated with kit gloves or that someone's so sensitive that they can't hear it but just the language when you're trying so hard to heal and to make some progress somewhere so that that was really hard and then I I had um I went to NIH I went to several places and you know you know I mean I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here about doctors but you know I understand it's a different lexicon and it's a very kind of you know I had people just say to me well you know we don't know but if you do it probably not going to be very good. Tell about the drawing. Tell about the drawing somebody oh, made. For and you. I had one, one doctor and I won't name names. She drew me kind of a crude outline of my, my head and neck. And then she took a big black thick marker and just like between my head and my neck, she goes, it's like, there's no communication here. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, it's just not, it's just not, And but you know, she was kind of saying that like, like, you know, get me some, you know, tomatoes at the market. It was just so, she wasn't trying to be mean. I, I knew that. Yeah. And then I just realized, Oh, well, if it's a communication problem, I'm a therapist. I'm all about communication. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know yeah. all about communication. Yeah. This so, is, yeah. so, so that was, a that was a, it was a hard thing to advocate, and to be realistic, because they were looking at, at you know, the, the x-rays, <laughs> but also to be, to maintain some um, modicum of hope. And what Jan taught me is that no matter what it looks like for you, that your recovering mine are going to look different, but in either of our shoes, there's some hope. Not hope that maybe you're going to even swallow again, but hope that whatever your life looks like, it can improve on some level. Yeah, it's
1: also fascinating, Sonia. So I actually have a book coming out soon. It probably will be out kind of around when this episode comes out, but it was written for patients. Because I think patients are just so lost and and it's really it's it's a book about where to go for you know what assessments are needed, what treatment options are out there. Um, I have a son with special needs and, and exactly what you said. I've, I've left so many appointments with him just sobbing because of the words people have said. I fired therapists and they're like, well, I didn't mean it that way. And I'm like, well, but you said it and you said it that way. And like, put yourself in my shoes and, ha- you know, like I have all the hope in the world for my son, even if you don't, just because you have some, you know, very diplomatic way of saying things medically, you know, it's like, we're all human. And I thought we got into this to provide that human element, you know? So I very I very much relate to where you're mm-hmm. and I completely understand how, how that goes with with what we have to say. And our words matter
3: so, so, so very much. Well, so. And I know I, I do. I need to make a plug here for Jan. Jan was the first. Jan was the first.
2: Jan's
1: rolling her
3: eyes for everybody. I'm sorry, Jan. Jan. Cover, cover your ears. You don't, right. have to hear the, un- <laughs> you don't have to hear the compliment. Tell okay, me when you're done. But Jan was the first. SLP that I worked with that when I went to see her with my applesauce or my yogurt, she put down a tablecloth and I almost broke down. It was like the most humane because I was the furthest I could be from that moment or that I'd ever be. And she brought some dignity and some honor and some respect to that moment, with just a very simple plain tablecloth, it 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 was. I, I mean, I don't want to be dramatic, but it was transformational. Yeah. Sorry, Jan. Sorry, right, you're making I'm me sorry. cry now. <laughs> yeah. All right, but it it speaks to that. It's that you know when people have lost or been feel betrayed by their body, that you lose more than just the physical right? You lose more than just your swallow. You lose your dignity. You lose your identity. You lose a lot of things. So that was what, one of the things you tell me. Thank you, Sonia. Well,
1: now we're all crying. So thanks, Sonia. Thanks, Jan. Thanks. (laughs) No, it's it's beautiful. It's exactly the truth. I I just don't know why, how we forget that human element so many times. It just, it, it,
3: i well, had i i I'm a theory teresa okay about okay, that fine. about that and then <laughs> i i really don't want to make sure i don't take all the air time i think in my experience because swallowing is so related to breathing but there's something primal about a swallowing difficulty and you know because we hear we choke and we we gasp and things get caught and then but when In my experience, when people learn that I have a swallowing problem, it's almost like, you mean you're breathing? You're like, I can't get my air? What do you mean? It's so threatening because it's so close to not being alive, like something would happen. And I think that that is part that just from my own psychological viewpoint, I think that's part of the. Uh, distance we make around that you know it's not like and then there's no hierarchy for disability I'm not saying being blind or deaf or in a wheelchair and it's all your thing but there is a difference when we talk about it being kind of a silent disability Mm -hmm. because you don't see it that way you don't see a person with a cane or a person with a hearing aid or and so when you learn that it's around breathing and swallowing. I think it's very threatening and scary, really scary. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, Jan. Oh. Thank you. Or thank you, Sonia. Thank you so, so, no, so we're, much. We're <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I
2: was
1: looking at Jan's name. Right? Good thank you, Sonia. I yeah. think
2: too, um, as a speech pathologist, I think that when we're working with patients, I think really we're... We think of dysphagia and we're picking now i get this also shout out to samantha shun because she has done a lot of great work on dysphagia's broader impact on people's lives and even family caregiver burden she's done a lot of really great work with that but i remember she did a a webinar for the foundation that's um, still on the foundation if you want to see it but it really moved me because she said well You look up dysphagia, you type that word in, and you get all these medical, you know, you get a picture of a skeleton swallowing, and you get all these anatomical pictures. And actually, I think that's kind of how I think about dysphagia is how does it work? You know, like how how does it how does it work? And so we spend a lot of our time like thinking about that from a clinical perspective. Like, oh, well, these muscles have to go this way, and then this has to stop, and then this goes, and there's positive and negative pressures, and it all has to happen at the right time. So I think that we we have our clinical hat on and, and we, we feel like a big piece. And it is an important part um, is about educating about why there's this problem. But I think that that we also aren't touching the humanity in that conversation. And maybe it's because we have so much only so much time to get this eval done and we're just meeting the person. And um, and so we've we got to get through this eval. we got to figure out what we're going to do. And we got to make make sure everybody understands what our recommendations are and why. And so I think we're, we're sort of in this mode. And I think a little bit for me is I am, I think my, a lot of speech followers are very empathetic people, but it's almost a little bit of a protection to not get too uh, emotionally involved, you know, something about, you know, wanting to like be able to treat this person without getting too involved, you know, like, or feeling too much that it's gonna, I don't know what. Or maybe we're not supposed to do it. We're supposed to be strong, you know. If they're crying, we're not supposed to be crying, you know. So I think there's a little bit of a, a clinical hat we wear in a way that we think about it, and I think that kind of comes across to patients. But I, I do think that it's okay to go there and say, you know, ask about, you know. For me, I realized as a speech pathologist that. <laughs> People with feeding tubes, I never say, well, how does it, how does, how does dinner work for you with a feeding tube? Are you eating with your spouse or not? Do you sit at the table? I don't even ask those. I don't go there. I think I'm afraid yeah, there's going to yeah. be tears, emotions. Yeah, right, right. That's where I think support groups are really helpful is to be able to have time to just then, you know, to, to go over all of that and to give, to treat, Sony and I talk about this a lot. Body, mind, spirit. It all needs to be treated. And I think that the support group is support groups and also just making a connection with your patient individually. I don't mean just wait for the support group, but I think that's where support groups have a healing um, potential. So, we as speech pathologists, I think that often I know me, I'm, I'm speaking all for myself. I think I am the Joe speech pathologist, the regular. I am it. I mean, I feel like I talked for, for speech pathologists. In that, our hope is we go in there. We want to make a difference in people's lives, so we go in and we're like, "Well, we're going to do our best job to make your swallow better, so that they aren't there aren't there isn't this this um, residual pro, You know, we take care of the problem, and then there won't be this 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 gap between you know what you can do now and what you want to do. It, it, we're gonna that'll take care of the psychosocial issues. Those will go away. We'll just treat the human condition. But what about the people that don't get better? What for them? Then what? And um, Sonia, I, we never knew if there was ever going to be. But I do remember the conversation we had, Sonia, when we were sitting in a little office at Scripps. And I said, you know, and I don't recommend people do this <laughs> necessarily. I said it. But for some reason, I said it. And I think it was just to put it out there. I said, Sonia, I I believe I'm going to hope that someday we are going to be sitting here together and we're going to be sharing a glass of champagne together, you and I. And um, we said, OK, someday. And and I have a picture of Sonia. Sonia, I don't know if you want this on air or not, but when she came up to San Francisco and she had started swallowing and I have a picture of her with a glass of beer drinking it. And it it is always my inspiration. I have it on some of my talks for my students and say, this is what it's all about here. Mm-hmm. And talking about the cup, Sonia wrote a beautiful poem about can you drink from the cup or oh, the cup of life? You know, it was, it was just so moving. And there she was drinking from the cup. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where I was going with this, but I'm, I guess <laughs> I just, I'm just kind of riffing on things that we've been talking about, but um, I, I guess um, we think that people are going to be- get better and they may not. and, get all the way better um, and or be better and still struggling a lot on a daily basis to to be
3: better, to be where they are. And Jan, can I just, is it okay to follow up on something Jan's saying? Of course. Um, and it's something that we talk about in the support groups, which is this idea of making meaning and what is better for you. So there's not one metric or one measurement like better means you're swallowing again, you know? Or better means you're on solid food, or better means you're on thicken. I don't know, but what does better mean given today? Or maybe better means you're not swallowing, but you're feeling grateful, or you're uh, you went for a walk. You heard, you know. So it's kind of um, expanding the meaning of better. Yeah. I love it.
1: Okay. So Sonia, if, if you don't mind, is there, were there any specific like techniques or strategies or therapy things that really were game changes for you? Or was it just the compound effect of everything and the magic of time?
3: Um, well, okay. That's a great question. And that's a very loaded question. Yeah, no, so answer all 97 of those <laughs> at once. Yeah. Uh, so I, I originally, initially, did what I was told to do, which was all, which were all of the exercises. You know, the what the you know, and I did them and I didn't see a result. I wasn't swollen. Then Jen and I, I went on, I think I talked to who's in New Zealand, Jan.
2: Was that Jackie Allen? Oh oh no. Maggie Lee. So it was Maggie Lee biofeedback probably. Was that? Yeah. Some of what you. Yeah. With the
3: mirror. Oh, no. And the oh, the icing. Okay. So then, you know, we tried a different thing, which is that little dental mirror and you stick it in ice, and you rub it uh, for five minutes, five times. A day. Actually that was Geraldine Logeman
2: recommended that because she, this is speech pathologist might be interested in this. So when I got, you know, I got the phone number, the bat phone to Geraldine Logeman. And we had a designated time to talk and, the phone rang and by golly, she picked up and she was, she was, was talking to the queen. I was just writing yeah. her. Yeah. I
3: was just like, yeah, I get, I got calls I from everybody, everybody, everybody.
2: There was no stone left unturned, which is great. <laughs> I mean that in a really good way. I mean, that is advocacy really. She, she, so Sonia did try everything, but, um, but Geraldine said that for people that, so Sonia essentially had lateral, uh, lateral medullary stroke. So like Wallenberg's she had, that's for speech. Which is the one of the hardest, I think, conditions to treat in my experience. And so, Geraldine said, "You know, people that are young that get these strokes," um, she said. They often, I found, after a long period of time, figure out their own creative way to swallow. They just figure it out. But she, while she said that, and and so I, but she couldn't tell me like, well, what's some ideas of some creative ways to do it. I didn't really have that, but she really recommended you go back to really the neurologic, you know, the sensory stimulation through the pharyngeal nerves to the motor center to try and stimulate those pathways. So um, she recommended to go, and this is back when tactile thermal stim was, I think Rosenbeck had already uh, published his article that showed that that we couldn't call it stimulation. We should call it, if anything, sensitization. And it had a temporary effect maybe, but not a long-term effect. Whatever. So people weren't using it at that time. We'd sort of abandoned the laryngeal mirror. But so Sonia, so we went back and I taught Sonia how to do it. And she she did it to herself and um, tried that. And that that didn't work either. So it, is that?
3: So I did. Yeah, I did. Um, I did. Um, I spent three weeks with Marcy Freed doing vital stem. And dilations. And also yeah, and, yeah, a lot many, of dilation, many, dilate, many. Dilate dilation, and also a lot of vital stem locally as well. Then I did the mirror. I did all the exercises. So, and I did have uh, Dr. Larian Babak Larian, who was my my um, ENT from Cedars when I first, because Dr. Keith Black did my craniotomy. Dr. Larian said, you know, these nerves. I can't remember how he said it, but basically what I took away was they, they grow infinitesimally slow, like glacially, like slow. And, you know, like you just said, just time. Well, that that's understandable, except when you can't swallow, then you can't, it's hard to think about time. So I tried all these things and I, I remember. I guess the the I can't say there was one moment. There were a few, but I remember I used to dream about drinking water in my dreams. And one day I woke up from a dream and I thought, well, if I'm dreaming that, it's because there's some part of me that still knows still still knows how to do it. And babies do it in utero, so. Clearly, there is some part of me that knows how to do that. So I'm gonna work on that. I'm gonna work on that part and from that part. And so I started, you know, I, I work, I talked with Jan, and luckily I I did not have silent aspiration. So I, I was able to actually put food in my mouth. And I said to Jan, I, I want to, because eating. As, as you all know, it's, you know, it's not just the act of chewing and swallowing. It's, it's, I'm hungry. What do I want? Oh, that smells good. Oh, that looks good. Oh, let me cook something. Oh, let me go. You know, it, there's a whole bunch of things involved before you ever chew. And then you get hungry and then you're slight, right? All that starts. So I thought, well, if I know how to do that, I have to remind myself how to do that. So what I would do is I would tube feed. I used to call you know, my, I'd call it my nutrition because it didn't deserve to be called food. So I would, And then at the same moment, I would cook something so I could smell it. And then I would chew it. And I would say to myself, as I was kind of filling up my belly. So I was doing the act of eating, but without swallowing. Because I was trying to engage all this other stuff. And I would think I, I would feel like I want to swallow, like I could feel the urge, and I'd say, "Well, go ahead." And I go, "But I can't, because it won't go down." Well, swallow and then spit out what you can't. And I, because Marcy Freed told me when I was doing vital stem, because she was a, I think, a physical therapist first, before she became—is that right, Jan? I don't
2: know. I think she did.
3: had a background. Okay, because that was.
2: I, th- I think I could be well, mistaken, but she definitely but think- took physical therapy principles when she started hooking people up to e-STEM devices when she didn't have any other alternative to try and help people. And she knew it helped for physical therapy people.
3: And I, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I remember she said something around the idea of, you know, if you want to walk, if you can't walk, let's say, for and you want to walk, you have to walk. You have to do the thing <laughs> that you can't do, and you have to tell your brain every time you take a step. That's it. That's what I want you to do. So if you can't swallow, you have to swallow, and you have to tell yourself every time, "That's it." So that's what I was doing with this chewing and spitting and feeding. And I was going, "That, that's it. That's it. That's what you want." Then there's a part two, but I want to, I want to leave it for chance because
2: no, the story this is, goes on this is a magic right here this is this is what people need to hear because as a speech pathologist this is if you're really paying attention your patients are your best teachers yeah we got the textbook but if you really really want to learn your patients are your best teachers and you i tell myself this all the time when i get a really challenging patient Sonia, don't take this wrong, but I Sonia, yeah. yeah, you yeah. get you get like the really challenging patient, and then you I, I've learned that you learn the most from the most difficult patients that you have, whether or not you you know they get better. I always felt like even though it's just it's hard work to try and come up with new ideas or new things or trying to unlock it, you know, and that's, I think what we love about what I love about the field is there's all of this problem solving and figuring it out. And I really like that part of that engaging, you know, that the analysis and then what am I going to do about it? I love engaging that. And also the reward of feeling like there there is, there is progress here and um, coming home and saying, you know, I think I helped somebody today. You know, that really, <laughs> that gets me up in the morning, but but you really do learn the most from the most challenging patients. And if you listen and you ask them, it's just like, that's why I just love listening to Sonia because all my best stuff comes from her. And a lot of the words, you know, we going back to words matter, a lot of the words that I've learned, I've learned from her about what to say in certain situations and just touching a little bit on swallowing support groups. Again, I think, I think one of the things that's, can be daunting as a speech pathologist, start a sport group is that it's unscripted, you know, I mean, all right. I like to have everything planned out. I like to go in there with, you know, and you just never know where things are going to go. And so then you're like, what am I going to say? What if somebody starts crying? What if, you know, and um, that's challenging because we want to be able to know the right things to say, you know, and, uh, and not to do harm and to, it would be like saying nothing is probably the wrong thing or is it? and so I've learned from watching Sonia kind of interact with people, you know what are what are good things to say when somebody's struggling or when something is brought up that's a sensitive topic and um and and to also really listen to what they're the meaning behind what they're saying so what is what is what are they really saying here? They're talking about hope. they're talking about the future. they're talking about you know, and to really listen to that topic there and to Allow then other people because that's the beauty of a support group is other people sharing their feedback back where they are healing one another. So, the best part, the magic in a support group is when you can step back as a facilitator and they are talking to each other and letting it happen there, right?
3: Some of you, absolutely. And, Jen, I just want you know, it I can appreciate from a uh, SLP's perspective, you know, you're not train therapists that way, you know, psychotherapist. So it is daunting. You know, you're kind of sticking your toe into a pond that can feel um out of your scope of practice. So I think that's why we make a good team because Jan can certainly feel you know so much that I can't and I can help the other way. But I just wanted to say that in my experience personally and as a therapist 30 years doing this, you know, when you talk to somebody about hope the underbelly of that is grief. They they live together usually, you know. Or you talk to somebody about about um, you know making meaning. What could it look like? You're going to get what it isn't often. So, you know, again, you want to have boundaries and parameters and have things set up if people really need more help than you can offer. But to not be afraid, or to make a safe space. For people to grieve maybe the what they had, what they don't have, what they wish they had, what they might not ever. You know, be, sometimes we jump to hope because because, of course, it's not comfortable and it's hard to sit in loss. But sometimes we we kind of leapfrog over the grief. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of times what people want to talk about, what they've lost. So I think that, you know, to find a way to empower speech therapists to to feel comfortable and to make it safe and still, still have those boundaries and parameters that they don't feel that they're thrown into the deep end. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I th- I think what's always interesting is how much is uncovered about what is important to the patient in those aspects. Like, I think so many times we we avoid those conversations in therapy because we just think, "Oh, these are the patient's deficits. This is what we need to work on. You know, this is where they're having trouble. This is the the treatment that goes along with that." But I've just learned that sometimes there's some things that we think are important that aren't important at all to the patient, and there's some things that are extremely important to the patient that we can help with that may not be anything that was on our radar. So I always, it, it's definitely a fine line between. You know How do you open up this can of worms, quote unquote, in a typical therapy session, which I think is why, the, like you said, the support groups are a really special container for that. But, but there is so much value and so much information to be gleaned about what is actually important to the patient and how you might be able to be even more instrumental in that piece than you know, you might have thought before.
3: And, and sometimes the way in our support groups that we can, I can facilitate that is by just asking what do you wish people knew about your dysphagia mm-hmm. or what would be the most helpful thing someone could say to you Yeah, or do for you or um, what's not helpful.
1: Yeah. I, uh, my son has struggled with feeding and eating ever since he was born. He's five now. And we had a feeding therapist maybe two years ago and she came to the house and, you know, one of the first things she said you know, my husband was in the room was in the kitchen. Actually, we were sitting in the dining room and she said, you know, what's one, you know, what is a goal for you? What do you wish, you know, your son could do? And I started, you know, getting all SLP, you know, I wish he could, you know, do that. And my husband just yells and he's like, I wish we could just go out for pizza. I wish we could just go to a restaurant and we could eat pizza and my child could eat pizza. And I just was like, oh my God, I didn't realize that was so important to my
2: husband. To be a normal family. Then that would be to be normal right? or what I, what I saw we would be doing when I became a dad, we would all be a family and
3: that's what families do. And that, you know, that taps into the bigger conversation about, you know, what happens to us when the road diverges, you know, and, and uh, it doesn't look what we thought, you know, and I I've said this before, you know, life as we all know, you know, we have bumps Things happen and we kind of, oh, let's take a moment. Get back to you. Oh, you're fine.
1: <laughs> I'm usually a crier. No. It's okay. Just not usually on my own.
3: <laughs> Thanks no, no. But I want, yeah. no, not to turn into a therapy session, but let's take a moment. Yeah, let's do no.
0: uh, <laughs> so, so, no,
3: yeah. it. it a but no. Okay. So it's about the loss. It's about what, right, yeah, what we thought yeah. we'd have and what we have. And we can hope for what we want, but this is what we have. So it's kind of finding that that way to be between two almost conflictual, which is what you have and what you want. And they're not the same in this moment. I
2: think one of the most poignant things that ever happened at a support group with me and Sonia, and it wouldn't have happened if Sonia wasn't there. And it's just like we talk about, you know, it's like, ooh, let's not to have anybody crying, you know, which we are doing right now. But, um, yeah. but, <laughs> but there was, uh, we were in this room and it was at UC Davis and we're talking and this lady, and I wish I could, I'm not gonna say her name, we'll call her Jane. She's, she starts crying and, and she literally, oh. she's and that's, we always have Kleenex around and we always have water for people. Um, But she's crying. And I'm like, I know this woman, this woman, I have worked with her husband for probably six, nine months. She has, he was in a halo. He was in a rollover accident. He had a trach. When I first saw him, I did a fees and things were coming out of his neck and we had to stop everything. And she was solid Minnesota, you know, lady bringing him into all the appointments and all the therapy, and it was extensive, and he had gotten some aspiration like She, she is a rock. The rock is crying in the room, and I'm like, oh my gosh, Jane is crying. I've never seen her cry. There, we've been through so much; she has never cried. And Sonia. so I'm like, oh, let's not make uh, Jane not not feel good. Let's over here. <laughs> <laughs> and Sonya goes, excuse me, just a minute. Um. Jane, it's possible that you might have um, allergies or something, but I noticed that you're um, using a tissue. And um, is there something that we say have said that has that has touched you that you'd like to talk about? Like, I'm like, Like <laughs> no! <laughs> like crash position. All right, here we go. Um, and you know what she says, and I hope I can get this out without myself crying. She's, you know, why she was crying. Thankfulness. Mm-hmm. Tears of thankfulness for all that they had gone through, the people that had helped her where they were now. It was tears of thankfulness. And I will never forget that moment. And I thought, and she wanted to say it. And that's what makes Jane cry is thankfulness. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that would
3: have never happened without Sony here. And um so that's thank you, Jenny. But it's also about, again, making that space. Right. And it's what you said. Too, we never know, you know, what the meaning is. That's that, I remember that, Jen. That was yeah. beautiful. And I was that's exhausted. Good. I felt like after that meeting, I
2: was like, I just had to, I had to go take a nap into our power nap because that was it was emotionally
3: exhausting for me. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'd been through all that. And then um, I think for the first five years of my pursuit you know I was very much fueled by I don't want to say anger but I was I will say anger okay I can say that I was so um, I was so unnerved that if it happened and it was so unconscionable to me that my story would end that way that I it, but I couldn't make it be different so I was really caught in that, in those crosshairs between just what I said to you, like, well, this is how it is, but this is not acceptable. That no, can't be this way. And I, it would play out around mine because I was making my own nutrition at that point. This is before, like, all the organic stuff came out. And then I would go down. Like, I can't go into a, um, like, a juice bar where they blend. Ju- I can't hear a blender. It just. Triggers me completely, but I would go downstairs and be like, time to make my nutrition. I'm not doing that. So I'd say, okay, don't do it. And then a couple hours to go by and I would go, I'm hungry. Make your nutrition. I'm not doing that. And that would go on like all day. So I had lots of days like that. So after about five years of that, and I really wasn't getting anywhere. I think what was underneath all that was depression. And I was just running from that. And I finally collapsed kind of internally around like, this might be it. You know, this might be it. And I couldn't figure out how, how to embrace it. And then, you know, it, it, it might sound corny, but I came to the word surrender. Which, because I felt if I had, if I accepted it, it was like I was condoning it or agreeing with it, or. But I thought, well, how can I accept it but not agree? (laughs) And I can surrender to today. So today, today, I'm not swallowing. I know it's a very twelve step, but today I'm not swallowing. But we don't know about. And so, so that became kind of a turning point mentally, for me. And then I was doing all this kind of self. Feeding the one. And then I was also praying a lot, you know. And I was doing lots of experiments in my kitchens. So, like, I would take, you know, a fourth of a cup of orange juice in a measured cup. Then I'd have another measuring cup and I would, you know, take a tablespoon and I'd have to spit it out, but I'd swallow some, but I wouldn't know it. And then I'd see what I had left. And it'd be less. So I was, you know, doing a lot of that. And then, so here's the turning point story. So one day I'm making chicken soup for my daughter who wasn't feeling well. And I, and and let me just preface by saying, I always in my, in a part of my mind thought, someday I just will. I just will. I'll, I'll remember how. And I took a little like a a little fourth of a teaspoon and I went to the sink and I, and I was always, Jen knows this. I was always kind of cocking my head because one side was stronger than the other. So I was always trying different head positions. And I did this kind of bird thing and you know how, well, I've said, you know how, but when you have dysphagia, you know, like when you drink something hot, you feel it, the warmth, and then you kind of can feel it in your chest or cold. But when you have dysphagia, you never feel it down here because it stops, right? So you, you only feel temperature if it's in your mouth. So I took the fourth of the teeth and I cocked my head and I swallowed it, and all of a sudden it felt hot down here. And I dropped the spoon and I backed up and I went and I said, "You know what happened?" I said, "No, yeah." And it was like in that instant. It was like a beautiful mind, like, you know, calculation, like just, I think neural, neuronal pathways and synapses just started doing something. And I thought I have been living on hope and what's hope. Hope is belief in what's not what you can't see. That's faith, right? Faith, belief in what you cannot see or prove. So I've been living with faith with no proof. And I had like one drop of proof. And from that moment, I said, I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's moving. And I would say. So the story is, my daughter went to Israel on a high school program, like three months. It was her first time in Israel. And I they invited the parents, like, you know, come see your kid and do all the tours. I went on this uh this uh parents tour to Israel, and I had to ship m- my canned nutrition because I didn't know if that blender. I didn't know where I was going, so you know it's a big deal to ship weird stuff to Israel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> they don't take too kindly to like they're like, "What are you doing?" So and to, so finally, I ship this this flat, and I go the first night. I think I was the only single parent grandparents were there you know families and they had like a meet and greet and it was in the kibbutz in the judean hills it was beautiful and i had learned at that point just to have a glass of sparkling water so nobody would know and i went out on this patio and there was no one there and you know it was lit up in the hills and you know The the antiquity of it and the history of it, you know, you just can feel it right when you're in a spot. And I just said, you know, I said, God, because I call it God. You can call it whatever you want. People have different names. I call it God. And I said, if you have in mind to do a miracle for me, because you've obviously done a lot of miracles, a lot of them happened here. I, You know, I'm here. I'm here. You don't have to find me. You don't have to come look for me. I've come to your backyard. I'm here. The Hebrew word is, I, I believe it's he It's like you know, here I am. I'm here. And so I will just shortcut the story. I was there for 14 days, and when I left, I left my nutrition. I'm not saying it's because of that moment because my friend Jan, my speech pathologist Jan, would say to me, nothing is wasted in God's economy. So everything you've done. Whether you've had a result immediately or not has been your investment, your deposit into the economy of your health and your well-being. So all of that came together. I came back, I called Jan, I told her, she said, okay, keep your tube for six more months. And if everything goes right, you can get that in six months. And I got that. One. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So what did I learn from someone? Never <laughs> give up hope. Never take
2: away hope from your patients. And when you've been doing this as long as I have, I have seen people that are doing really well, but only have to get this much further and they don't make it. I mean, they're they're eating, you know, and just maybe struggling with one thing or something and they never get there to where they get off their tube. And there's other people that it's like a grand canyon of a leap from here to here. It's not just a little leap. It's a grand canyon. And I've seen those people just that aren't supposed to be swallowing. And I've seen them swallow. And I cannot tell you exactly how they're doing it. And sometimes if you do a swallow study, you'll still see things aren't moving, but somehow they figured it out or it happened or it was a miracle or it was whatever.
3: And Jan, when I did my last feast test at Davis, you, Peter, uh, a couple other people there and everyone was in tears because it was the first time that they said pass. And it wasn't perfect, but it was a pass. I wish I had met you guys before I had wrote my book.
1: But that's a lot of what I talked about in the book is just don't let people tell you that you can never swallow again because I've just seen it happen so many times. Exactly like you said, it may not be picture perfect. It may not be the way that we learned in a textbook. But I've seen so many people that you know the human body is just so fascinating and how it can compensate different things and overcome and and. Yeah, and so. I
3: say, you know, I don't have, I call it a restaurant swallow. I don't have a restaurant swallow. Like where, you know, we go, you know, and it's, it's, the, you know, I'm drinking three iced teas to your one. I'm, I've got a stack of paper napkins, but, you know, and I, I, I joke that I'm a narcissist dream for a date because we're going to talk about you while I eat. Because <laughs> one of the things I can't do is I can't eat and talk. I can't, which is a a hard thing, you know, because you can't say the punchline. You can't be in on the joke. It's it's past. You're not going to you're not going to get on that train. But when we have lunch while I eat, you're going to talk and I'm going to listen and eat. And then when I'm done, then I'm going to talk. So it's all about you. (laughs) (laughs) And who doesn't like that? (laughs) (laughs) it's beautiful Sonia is that on your dating profile (laughs) and I just want to say to you one thing you said your book who's to say it might not be a trilogy oh it very well could be because I finished
1: it and I submitted and I was like gosh I should have mentioned that I should have added a chapter about that I should have added a chapter about that that's for your second I know so yeah I know there's so many things that I'm like how did I spend three years writing this thing and now all of a sudden (laughs) I remembered everything that I forgot so yeah (laughs) (laughs) so all right well this conversation has been wonderful and amazing and i'm kind of speechless which never happens for a podcast person so um anything else you guys
3: want to cover any any final thoughts i mean this is so i just want to say thank you for the opportunity and you can see that jan and i are a fan club for each other but we love each other and we we've been able to be you know patient therapist friends and uh, co-leaders so we have we have a lot of um a lot of ways to be connected and this is one of them and so thank you so much for the opportunity yeah
1: thank you so much for sharing your story sonia all the inner workings of it it's it's so vulnerable and so helpful and so beautiful so thank you
3: well that that's my hope that something you know that that takes it from the personal right something bad happened Cause that's how often, you know, something bad happened that something good can happen to mm-hmm. final thoughts, Jim speechless. Um,
2: I guess I would just really advocate for speech pathologists to really provide more support groups. There's only about 17 in the whole United States. And I just think there is a great need for healing in the spiritual or the personal side of things, the emotional side of things um, for patients that um, we're not addressing. So healing is is really not just the physical part. And um, there seems to be a dearth of even psychologists that you can access in most of the hospitals I worked at. I don't even know the name of the psychologist, if it's provided you know, through the hospital or do they just have to go to the phone book or something and find a random person. So, but this provides healing in a, in a very specific way. So I guess I would just encourage people if they have any interest in support groups to go to the foundation website, there is a support group link. There's resources, support groups, if they want to start one. And um, I'm one of my roles is I'm responsible for supporting people that start support groups. So I've talked to a lot of people. I just talked to someone in Northern Ireland today that was starting a support group on a weekly basis there. And she, that was interesting. And so, I think the hardest thing is just getting it started and committing to it. And I think we all feel like we st- don't have very much time and we're trying to get that balance of homework like. But I, I guess I would just encourage people to consider that if they've. And I think a lot of speech pathologists have the desire to do so, yeah. to start yeah. to do that. Yeah, that's it.
3: Yeah. And the other thing I was just going to say about the foundation is, you know, to enough, you'll be able to provide that link for people. And there's a, you know, we have a documentary on there. And I don't know if you've seen that. It. It's called Swallow, a documentary. It's really, I think, was the first documentary from a patient's point of view. And it, 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 it I think it's educational and, and helpful. It can be.
2: And I think we did it to raise public awareness. So it's it's a little bit intense, too. So to raise, because it is a hidden kind of disease. So it is more on the intense side. And it was meant to be that way, but. There's hope too, but it's on the intense. Is that is that okay to characterize it that way? Yeah. Well, it's, hopeful, uh, it's an intense subject. That's right. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Thank you guys so much. This has been so wonderful. Thank you
3: so yes. much. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you for doing the podcast. Anytime. Anytime. We're you're welcome to reach out. We're Thank here. Thank you. Thank you.
1: To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.